All right, welcome back to the Inclusion Solution Live podcast. I'm Gabby Gonzalez here in the studio with uh, the Winters Group's founder and CEO, Mary Frances Winters, uh, my lovely co-host. Mary Frances, how are you checking in today? Checking in great, checking in really, really well, really excited about this conversation. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good day. Love spring. And so spring has sprung and it's a good day. <laughs> Thank goodness. And we have in the studio with us Lee Morrison. Lee, who was our guest previously on a prior episode, um, is the learning and innovation manager and also a co-author of Racial Justice at Work, Practical Solutions for Systemic Change. Lee, how are you entering today? I am checking in good today. Uh, also enjoying some warmer weather and um, I am really excited for this conversation. It's a pleasure to be here with both of you today. So I'm checking in as usual, energized and excited. I'm really excited about um, Lee's chapter on learning and development. So thanks, Lee. Okay, we'll kick it over to you, Mary Frances, to introduce Lee's um, topic for today. Yes, absolutely. Um, Lee, it's, as I said, it's really good to have you here and um, just want to honor and appreciate you for all of the work that you do at the Winters Group and uh, for the chapters that you wrote um, in the book. And today we're going to be talking about the chapter related to uh, learning and development. But before we do that, why don't you tell our listeners something about yourself, you know, who you are, um, background, anything you want to tell us, and then also uh, tell us why, you know, wh why you thought that uh, the chapter on learning and development um, was important and why you wrote that chapter. So take it away, Lee. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mary Frances. Um, so yeah, I will uh, check in also with uh, some of my I am statements. Uh, I am a queer white woman. I am cisgender. I am mostly able-bodied. I am a Midwesterner originally, but I'm currently um, on the East Coast um, in Philadelphia. I am uh, an educator and also identify uh, very strongly as a lifelong learner. So for me, those are uh, closely intertwined. I am, uh, historically, I would have called myself a writer, but I've shifted more recently to uh, broadening that to storyteller. Um, and. Uh, also, I am a partner, daughter, sister. Um, so those are a few of the identities that I am bringing with me to this space. Um, and why I specifically focused on uh, this topic for one of my chapters in Racial Justice at Work. Um, so I, in graduate school, focused my studies on diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice-related learning in professional spaces. Uh, and this was of interest to me, uh, partly because of my own cross-cultural experiences and learning both in and outside of the classroom and um, just ways that I had seen that broaden my own perspectives and understanding about the world and uh, really wanted to support others with the same learning. Uh, so that's how I found myself to uh, <laughs> my master's degree uh, focused on this topic. And um, I would say, I think no one on uh, this podcast recording would disagree that uh, sometimes this work, uh, I would say diversity training in general can get a bad rap. Um, and I would say for some very valid reasons. So I will be the first to acknowledge that there is a lot of bad diversity training out there. Um, <laughs> there is uh, training that is designed by people who are not experts. There is uh, performative and kind of virtual virtue signaling um, 
We see a lot of one-offs of, oh, we just want to have this training uh, to kind of check this box, but it's not really uh, reaching more broadly throughout the organization. And so um, I would be one of the first to acknowledge that I think our industry has sort of a history of this. And um, I think we at the Winters Group are trying to push back on that and challenge our clients to uh, think about learning and development around these topics um, as part of a broader uh, organizational effort toward culture change. Um, and I would say that uh, when I first started as an instructional designer at the Winters Group, we were designing a lot of intercultural competence-based uh, content. And uh, I think we started to see a lot of shifts in that in um, 2020 during the racial reckoning. Uh, so this really shifted and we started seeing a lot of organizations really wanting to explicitly uh, build training around racial justice and related topics. Um, and I think that's where we started to see <clears throat> a lot of these nuances coming up that I write about in the chapter. So um, <laughs> Mary Frances probably remembers this. We had a client uh, who reached out to us actually before the murder of George Floyd and they wanted to uh, host a session on anti-Black racism in response to the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. Um, and they reached out to us and they shared, uh, so this is going to be an ABC audience. It's going to be allies. It's going to be Black folks. And it is going to be people who are clueless and are just kind of coming into this for the first time. And I was thinking back to this and it was, uh, they were actually a bit concerned. They, they asked us, do you think this is too long after um, this event happened? Uh, little did we know that this would end up being hosted directly following the murder of George Floyd. And so, um, you know, that's just the country that we live in. Unfortunately, these events are not isolated. Um, it's part of these broader systemic issues. And so, of course, um, we did see that this topic continued to be very relevant. Um, and in fact, <laughs> um, grew into something larger than any of us might have anticipated at that time. Um, and so what they shared with us is that we really want to create a space where our Black employees can share about their experiences to just help build understanding across the organization. Um, and so, you know, Mary Frances and I went back, we worked on um, some discussion around how are we going to frame this? How do we invite voices in without... Um, expectation. And um, what we ended up doing, I believe, was uh, a survey where we invited folks to share anonymously um, some of their experiences, anything that they wanted to share with their colleagues. Um, so again, it was invitation, not expectation. Um, but I think this was kind of, uh, this sticks in my memory as one of the uh, shift points where we started seeing some of these nuances coming up. And when they brought this challenge to us of uh, we're going to have these three audiences, it was really challenging to design because those are very different needs for those three audiences. And um, I think we've only seen it become more complicated since then um, in, as it relates to, you know, if we're putting the pain of marginalized groups on display for another group's learning, that quickly starts to feel like a values clash with the intention of our work. Um, and I think that actually has the potential to undermine trust and psychological safety um, by continuing to center the needs of white people. So uh, that's a little bit of the history behind um, how this chapter came about. <laughs> Wow, thank you for sharing. Well, I mean, just in listening in to your background here, um, 
this also brings up, you know, when you hear the term racial justice, you know, what does that mean to you? And what trends are you seeing in light of having to meet so many different learners, you know, where they are? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we, in our book, define uh, justice as correcting past harm. Um, and so obviously it has a lot of ties to history, um, what has played out historically. I would say to me, racial justice is also uh, distinctly future focused. So tuning into how are organizations and institutions reckoning with this harm to prevent it from continuing, because we know much of it is continuing to play out today. How are we looking to disrupt that in the future? What possibilities are out there? What's working? What may need to be adjusted or iterated? Um, and I would expect that in the next 10 years, we'll see more and more organizations making real changes to disrupt this harm um, in ways that may not have been considered previously. Um, and in my professional opinion, organizations have a lot to gain from getting involved in this sooner rather than later. Um, and so I think one place where we do really see this showing up is in learning and development spaces um, and thinking about, uh, you know, historically, we may have uh, contracted the same learning for everyone in our organization. We want to uh, develop this uh, mutual foundation that everyone understands the same concepts, and that certainly makes a lot of sense. I would also argue that um, this is one topic where there may need to be uh, some more nuance in how we are approaching that so that we are not actually continuing or perpetuating this harm that we're seeking to disrupt. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, do you really think that um, in the in the years ahead um, that organizations uh, will recognize um, the need to look at this work more developmentally? Um, you're an educator, as you mentioned, and you know that when you educate, right, you have to meet, meet people where they are thinking, you know, about, uh, you know, K through 12, uh, how children learn, right? How, how And even how adults learn, right? Um, you have to start at a point where they're able to, um, you know, comprehend and then develop from there. And I found that this work um, is quite often not not thought about from a developmental um, perspective. So I'm glad that you're so optimistic that you think <laughs> in the future organizations will um, will get that there's a need, you know, for that. So different audiences, you know, um, as you meant, mentioned in the ABC, you know, the ABC group. So obviously uh, Black people and other marginalized groups have had different, you know, different experiences. Um, those who are clueless, um, and we don't, you know, are not throwing any shade on the clueless, but they're clueless perhaps because they just haven't had, you know, haven't had any, um, you know, haven't had any uh, experience or training. So can you speak to, um, you know, a more developmental approach and how we convince those who are buying the services of learning and development uh, around DEIJ that this is the way to go, not a one and done. How, how do we, you know, how do we do that? And why are you so optimistic that that's going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I would say I don't expect that that's uh, the approach that every organization will take, uh, especially not initially. Uh, but I do see when I think about some cultural shifts that I see that are encouraging, I think there is uh, some increased expectation of accountability from various types of stakeholders. So whether it's employees within the organization, 
uh, whether it may be clients or uh, people consuming whatever the organization is putting out. Um, also, uh, we are seeing more expectation from investors to uh, think about what are the social implications of um, policies and what we are putting out into the world. Uh, so I think there's uh, a need and expectation coming from a variety of uh, different stakeholders. I think for me, a lot of the accountability does come back to us as practitioners in this work and really sticking to what we know works well. So um, I know as an educator that, <laughs> you know, if uh, someone is exposed to something in kind of a half hour online training, self-paced, um, and that's uh, all they see, they're just asked to uh, complete this as part of their onboarding or their development, and it's not connected to anything else, uh, that's not likely to transfer into behavior change for that person. And so, Increasingly, when I'm having conversations with our clients um, and helping them to understand that this takes time, it needs to be uh, involved as other uh, parts of your organization are uh, thinking about strategy and uh, thinking about onboarding, leadership development. Um, it, it's all related, and I think helping our clients to understand that by even talking about and you know mary francis you say all the time if we do what we've always done we'll get what we've always gotten um i've been bringing that into conversations with clients where um you know we can roll out another learning for all staff but if this is not connected to uh strategy and other things uh we're unlikely to see the change that we're hoping for um and then also, I think just helping people to understand that this is a very complex topic. Um, there are uh, dissertations written on this. People spend their whole careers studying the history of uh, race, racism, racialized trauma. Um, and, uh, you know, to really do justice to these topics and help people understand the implications, the history, um, what is within their spheres of influence. Um, how this connects to the work that they're doing day to day, that all takes reflection. It takes uh, time. It takes uh, marination opportunities. So sometimes people need to sit with something for a while, come back, bring questions back. And, you know, we're not going to be able to accomplish all of that in a one-off two-hour session. So how are we really thinking about this um, as uh, capacity building and um, as something that can set people up for getting the information, doing the reflection, thinking about how this um, can show up in their day-to-day -day work and in their behaviors, what they have to gain also, because unfortunately, or <laughs> for better or worse, I'll say, um, we do know that for adult learners, they always wanna know what's in it for me. Um, so making those connections more explicit, um, this can enhance your working relationships. This can enhance uh, your organizational goals and um, what you're trying to accomplish, um, especially when this is something that is intertwined in everyone's day-to-day -day experiences, in their roles that they um, feel like they have accountability for uh, making this happen as well. And it's not just something that lives over there or under HR or um, this person or this uh, employee resource group is responsible for this. So that's that's not my responsibility. We really want to um, help individuals, organizations, clients um, think about how this can be integrated throughout our organization and what they have to gain.
Yeah, I love this. <clears throat> I just wanted to quickly ask um, if you could speak to some of the specific, um, you know, behavior changes or culture change that you you often address through learning, learning and development, just for our audience. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I would say that uh, a lot of it is, for me, a lot of it comes back to humility. Um, and I think that in our culture, there's not always a lot of uh, understanding of that. It's not necessarily a skill that <laughs> many of us are challenged to develop. Um, we talk about in some of our Bold Inclusive Conversation sessions, the difference between dialogue and debate. and that uh, oftentimes we are trained to seek out uh, what is missing from this person's uh, argument? How can I poke holes in it rather than uh, really seeking to understand what is this person's perspective and experience help uh, me to understand about this problem, this challenge, this topic um, on a deeper level, uh, really assuming that everyone has uh, parts of this broader truth that we're seeking to understand. Um, so I think humility is certainly one. I think um, expecting that, you know, we may make mistakes and uh, building capacity to sit with discomfort. Um, so we talk a lot about building comfort with discomfort. I think this work is inherently uncomfortable, especially for those of us who may not have uh, the lived experiences to um, have really thought through this a lot. And if uh, we are encountering some of these topics, some of these uh, realities about injustices for the first time, it might be very uncomfortable. It might be very painful. Um, I think for me, a big narrative that I'm always seeking to uh, bring into the learning that I design is, uh, I think shame is a risk. We can get caught in shame. We can sit in shame and it can prevent us from being able to move forward, um, learn how to do better and uh, you know, correct harm that we may have been complicit in ourselves. Um, and I think uh, it's really critical for those of us with access to positional power. Um, I would say white folks in particular to uh, really think about, you know, what is coming up for me as I'm feeling uncomfortable with this? Um, how can I build capacity to sit with that, reflect on it, um, and, uh, you know, have conversations, um, educate ourselves. Uh, there are so many resources out there that are designed to support us in moving through this so that we can also create uh, a world that works better for everyone. and. Uh, we don't have to get caught in uh, these same, uh, this is uncomfortable, this is uh, just not really something that uh, relates to my lived experience, so it's not my responsibility um, that I think has long-term prevented the progress that I hope we'll see in our lifetimes. Lee, early in the conversation, you mentioned um, virtue signaling. I'm not sure that our um, listeners will know what that is. Could you explain that, please? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, virtue signaling is uh, essentially, uh, I think a, a term that could be interchanged with it is uh, performativity. So, um, you know, we see that uh, something has happened in our world and uh, we want to make sure that all of our employees know that we're attending to this. Um, and so uh, we're very quickly going to put together this training um, or this listening session, what have you. 
um, without really thinking about the broader implications. How is like, what are the goals of what is going to come out of this? How will this um, support culture change more broadly? Uh, I also think uh, virtue signaling can come up in uh, individual interpersonal interactions. So it's the uh, posting the black square on Instagram um, without uh, making broader changes in our lives around who are we supporting uh, financially um, and uh, how involved are we in uh, these topics. It's, it's kind of the... Uh, what is, what is easiest or uh, most accessible without, uh, I think, going deeper to uh, really promote uh, the change or uh, development that we'd like to see more broadly. Um, and I think a lot of it comes from people being well-intentioned, I will say that. Um, <laughs> I think they, they see a problem, they wanna show that they're tuned in and responsive to it. Um, but I think there's also um, some self-reflection to be done there around uh, what is my intention here uh, and how am I showing up in other parts of my life to support this cause, not just um, in this moment or in response to what may uh, have come up in the news this week. You said, you've said so many great things and you, you've offered so much because one of the things I, I heard you say humility, I heard you say self-awareness, I heard you say complexity, I heard you say reflection. You know, those are, those are all key elements, I think, to learning and development uh, in this, you know, in this space. So it's not as easy as building a skill um, because that's, because there are skills that we can build where it doesn't really require us to shift our mindset or to think about the emotional aspects of it. So I can think of a skill like golf, right? But you you still have to practice. Even when you learn to be a fairly decent golfer, and I understand it's difficult, I'm not a golfer, but you still have, you still have to practice. Um, if you learn how to play the piano is a, an example that I often use. And I say, developmentally, you have to start the person um, you know, where, where they are. You're not going to start with Mozart's fifth concerto or whatever it might be if they've never played the piano before. But even when someone becomes good at playing the piano, they're not going to stop learning new pieces and they're not going to stop practicing. So I also, well, you called yourself a lifelong learner. And I think that, you know, I think that that's another thing that our listeners need to, to take in as they listen to this, that this is a lifelong, I'm, I'm you know, I've been doing this work now for almost 40 years. And I'm still, you know, learning as well. And when we hear people say relative to the training, okay, we've done that. We've had our two-hour session. We've had our four-hour session. We're good. We're done. You know, the idea of with anything that you learn, if you don't use it or don't practice it, you're going to, to lose it. So I also heard that thread. And coming into the work and coming into the learning with humility suggests that, oh, I don't already know everything. I'm going to be, I'm going to be humble. Uh, but we oftentimes see people coming into the work saying, oh, I'm not a racist. I'm not prejudiced. You know, I love everybody. And so why do I need this? I'm not seeing it as uh, an opportunity uh, to learn about our similarities, you know, and, and our differences, but coming at it more from a uh, I don't want to say arrogance, but coming at it from a, I got this and why do I need this? Because I'm a good person. Yes. And so maybe you could talk a little bit more about that sort of phenomenon. I'm a good person. I'm not prejudiced. I got it. 
<laughs> Absolutely. So uh, even before we really uh, were designing all of this uh, racial justice focused learning, um, as I mentioned, when I started out, it was a lot of uh, intercultural competence. And uh, so we have a model at the Winters Group. It begins with self-understanding. From there, we build to other understanding and being able to bridge across differences. And I see even in uh, conversations with clients around contracting, um, there's this urgency. We want to skip uh, the self-understanding piece. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I always have to laugh a little bit uh, when I see uh, session evaluations where someone says, I already knew all of this um, <laughs> because, you know, I... I intellectually may understand all of this. Still, sometimes when I sit through a session that I've designed something similar maybe 50 times, I've watched our facilitators facilitate it, I can still get something new um, mm -hmm. when I attend that session. And um, you know, maybe it's a story that the facilitator shares. Um, <laughs> maybe it is uh, a connection that a participant brings up. And that causes me to think about something in a totally different way, even as a practitioner in this space. Um, and so, you know, I I understand people are busy. They uh, don't want to be uh, pulled into something that they feel is um, not a good use of their time. But I would challenge us to think about um, what am I putting into this and <laughs> how does that correlate to what I'm getting out of it? So that's uh, one thing that I would lift up. Um, and I think for me, the more reflection that I do um, about my own experiences, about uh, just uh, challenges that I myself have encountered or uh, may have seen others encounter, um, the more connections I see to all of um, these topics in our work. So I know uh, couple years ago, we did a feature on our blog, uh, the Inclusion Solution, around white supremacy culture and reflecting on how does this show up in me, in uh, how I show up in the workplace. And, you know, I, I had an intellectual understanding of that before, uh, but it wasn't until I actually sat down and <laughs> wrote for that blog series that uh, I really started to understand the ways that this was showing up for me, harming me. Um, and uh, I think it can take uh, years, decades, um, probably a lifetime to fully understand that. We always say uh, we are never finished with the self-understanding piece, even when we move on to other understanding and bridging across differences. Uh, we can't lose that piece because um, it is just so critical to even understanding how other people's experiences differ from our own um, begins with understanding why do I believe what I believe? What have I experienced and how uh, might that be different from other people? Absolutely. And then you're also creating the space for people to be able to share their stories. So I don't know if you can speak to that a little bit more as that being as far as it being an element that takes time and to create, you know, the psychological safety so that people will share and how that relates to the to the timeline. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one thing that we do have to be very mindful of in this space is that um, oftentimes these topics are very personal to people. Um, there's a lot of vulnerability associated. And uh, I think all of us would do well to challenge ourselves to think about um, how can we show up authentically and vulnerably in these spaces. 
I also always share that um, we want to create invitation, not expectation, uh, because pushing people too far out of uh, their comfort zone or um, making them feel like they must speak to their experiences, um, again, can undermine that psychological safety piece and uh, might actually be harmful to uh, the broader culture change that we're trying to support. Lee, can you give us some practical um, approaches to incorporating a racial justice lens to learning and development? Absolutely. So uh, first, I would just emphasize I do not have all the answers. Uh, our team does not have all the answers, but I'm so grateful for uh, our uh, just shared working through these challenges in real time um, and uh, happy to share a few insights. So I think Historically, organizations have contracted learning as one size fits all. Um, and I think that racial justice is a topic that is just not as conducive to that. So uh, I think it's important to consider different needs uh, among employees as it relates to this topic, recognizing that for some it's very personal, emotional, deeply connected to their daily lived experiences. And for others, this may be very new to them. Um, and so I think what we have seen uh, in our work is that black and brown employees may need time away or to process their experiences with colleagues who can relate to them. White colleagues might need a history lesson um, and those are very different needs. So um, I would encourage organizations to consider how they might be able to use caucus learning or caucus discussions. Um, as a place to make space for both of those needs. Um, so uh, bringing people who share an identity into a space for conversation and then not leaving it there, but uh, making sure that those conversations come back to the broader organization. And uh, from there, we can have conversations about uh, what have we learned, what do we need to move forward um, and how can we support one another. Um, I would also really encourage organizations, if you are thinking about racial justice learning, not to shortcut history. Um, I see a lot of clients saying, oh, can we just throw in a timeline of the history of racism in 10 minutes? Um, <laughs> and I would say that that also, I think, can end up um, being very deficit and pain focused rather than um, focusing on um, assets and uh, humanizing of historically marginalized groups. So I would say that's very important. Um, and, you know, it may not always be possible to contract different learning for different groups, but um, I would encourage organizations, facilitators, practitioners to at least allow the option for uh, those who may have very personal experiences with these topics to opt out of something that might be uh, triggering to them, um, knowing that you know we're not going to serve anyone by forcing everyone to sit here and uh, be re-traumatized by something that they are living day to day in their experiences. Um, and so uh, there are so many resources available where people have already chosen to uh, put in labor. I uh, think it's really important to um, offer resources beyond just your employees um, who have this experience themselves. Um, there are uh, a lot of 
resources available uh, where people have already opted in to that emotional labor in sharing about their own experiences. Um, and so I think that's very important. Um, and then I would also just say, be very intentional to ask black and brown employees what they need and not assume that you know. So as I mentioned, we uh, saw a lot of organizations rushing to, we need to have a listening session. We need to um, have all of these DEI initiatives. This is so important. And what we started to see was that that additional work, that burden would end up falling on uh, people who are already most marginalized in the organization, in the broader world, um, people who are ERG leaders and uh, occupy marginalized identities. Um, so really be intentional to compensate for that additional labor, but also even before you get to that point, think about uh, what is the objective of this? Um, have we checked in with our employees to see that this is what would serve them best during this time? Um, because maybe it's not more work or more DEI sessions that they need. Maybe they need time away. Maybe they need rest. Um, and so uh, just not assuming that we know uh, what our employees need and making sure to check in with them. Um, and I would just say, especially with listening sessions, um, if you are thinking through what is uh, going to come out of this session and the main answer is educating white employees um, about the experiences of their black and brown colleagues. Um, I would encourage all organizations to really think about um, who that is serving and um, how that uh, is going to promote this broader culture change and trust because I would argue that it won't. Yeah, so um, Lee, this has been um, really um, an amazing conversation. Uh, learning um, is just so core to our humanness, our humanity. And uh, we at the Winters Group um, want to do our learning and, and design our learning and have people experience it with, um, you know, with, with fidelity. Um, and it can be difficult. Um, we, you know, we all know <laughs> here that um, sometimes um, our clients, I'm just gonna be honest, sometimes our clients can be challenging um, asking us to modify our content so that it is more palatable to those who perhaps they don't think um, are ready. So in this work, in this challenging work, um, as we try to meet our clients' needs while at the same time not leaving them where they are so that they are, you know, um, um, moving and growing, how do you fill your own cup? I mean, how do you um, address the challenges and the emotional labor that goes into this work. What do you do for you? So that is such a good question. I think uh, for me, I've been reflecting on how I think, especially since the pandemic, I do think this is an area of opportunity for me. Uh, I think I uh, really value human connection. I really value uh, spending quality time with people. And uh, in the world that we've lived in for the last few years, that has really been challenging. Um, it has not always been safe or felt safe. And uh, so that continues to be something that I am reflecting on and uh, trying to find a good balance with. Uh, but I will say carving out quality time um, 
where, you know, I'm just fully logged off uh, from work. I've turned off all my news notifications um, and I'm spending time with people that I love. Um, I will say uh, movement has been very important for me. So uh, shout out to Gabby. Yesterday we had a meeting and uh, she shared, you know, I'm going to be uh, walking and talking, would you care to join me? And uh, I really appreciated that because I wouldn't have thought of that otherwise. And so we took a walk and um, had our meeting um, in that way. And I think, uh, yeah, finding time to move my body has been very important to me. Um, and then finding ways to uh, lean into care and learning um, in the ways that feel available and safe to me with my own risk tolerance in um, this uncertain world. So um, you can see I have uh, some plants behind me. Um, I have really become uh, interested in learning about plants. I have a lot of plants um, in my home and uh, that is a continuous learning journey for me, probably will be throughout my life. Um, <laughs> I used to, uh, have a lot more challenges and uh, my challenges have changed with my plants over time. But I think um, it really does help me to just feel uh, grounded sometimes. And, um, you know, like I'm, I'm caring for a living being. I am um, making my space into a space that feels comfortable to me. I am learning as I go and I'm rejecting perfectionism as it relates to white supremacy culture. So I think I used to uh, really feel so guilty when um, I would uh, mistreat a plant and my plant wouldn't survive and I would uh, <laughs> uh, just say, oh, you know, that felt so bad. I don't even want to get another plant. Um, and I've moved beyond that. And you know what? It feels really good. <laughs> I love that analogy. It's like you're surrounded by growth. So thank you Absolutely. for sharing. So just wanted to thank Lee, want to thank our listeners, want to thank my co-host, Mary Frances. And I'm going to kick it back to you, Mary Frances. All right. Thank you both. And until next time, continue to reimagine racial justice at work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.